Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special guest, returning guest, Avichal Garg. Avichal, welcome back to the podcast. Great to chat. So Avichal, you're the founder, uh, co-founder of, of Electric Capital. Uh, by way of introduction, talk about uh, your firm, what, what inspired you to create it, and what is the thesis uh, of the firm? Yeah, so um, maybe backstory, and then I'll sort of bleed into how Electric happened. So I spent most of my career uh, as an entrepreneur. Uh, I was at Google for a bit. I started and sold two companies. I sold my second one to Facebook. I uh, was a director of product there for a few years. While I was there, started dabbling in angel investing and and um, had had some success with it. And uh, when I was doing my second startup, um, this was in like 2010, 2011, what we were doing is we, we were essentially a uh, uh, like a mobile infrastructure company. We, we built a bunch of tech and IP to run machines in a lot of distributed data centers all over the world. That was part of the IP that Facebook bought. Kind of what we'd done was signed up for a bunch of contracts um, and had a bunch of computational power. And, and we were doing some Bitcoin mining at home because my co-founder Curtis comes from a distributed systems background. And so for a hot minute in 20, 2011, we said, hey, maybe we should become Bitcoin miners. Uh, this is super cool tech, like maybe this will become something. Ultimately ended up selling that company, but essentially stuck around as hobbyists in the space um, since then. Uh, after I left Facebook in 2016, a bunch of VCs started reaching out to us because kind of 2017, with the last Bitcoin cycle that was happening, a bunch of people were interested and, and they started reaching out to Curtis and myself and saying, hey, I remember four or five years ago, you guys telling us about this Bitcoin stuff. Is it real this time? Should I buy some Bitcoin? What's an ICO? What's Ethereum? How do I participate? And that's kind of where we were spending all of our time back in 16, 17. And so what ended up happening was a, a bunch of those VCs very quickly realized by about 2018 that they weren't really set up to participate in, in crypto. The networks are different. The way you invest is different. Uh, you know, you have to do custody. Like one day, if you invest in a token network, you, you get a bunch of tokens that are liquid. Like, what do you do with that? The uh, regulations are different. And you have to register with the SEC if you're over $150 million and have crypto assets because they're liquid. So a bunch of VCs sort of very quickly realized that they couldn't participate here uh, or didn't want to participate here. Um, and, and some of them approached us and said, hey, could we give you guys our money and you do whatever it is that you're doing with, with uh, your personal assets, just do them with our money as well. And we, and we trust you guys. We know you're not going to go buy some anonymous cryptocurrencies and run off to Costa Rica or something. Um, and so that's how Electric happened. We, we essentially formalized a lot of what we were doing personally. Uh, a bunch of general partners at, at the VC firms on Sand Hill, or I guess uh, South Park these days, decided to um, give us their personal allocations for, for crypto. Um, and we got Electric off the ground. And that was in um, kind of the first quarter of 2018 that we formalized all of that. Um, and, and have been investing in the space ever since and just closed our second fund uh, earlier this year uh, in 2020, which is kind of our first institutional fund. So that's um, mostly U.S.-based uh, university endowments and healthcare systems and large uh, nonprofits are the bulk of our capital base now. Let's zoom out and, and, and just talk about the, the landscape of, of, of funds right now. Obviously, there's there's uh, Polychain, there's uh, Pantera, there's there's Paradigm, A16Z Crypto. I, I, you know, there's you know probably a dozen other uh, and plus you know meaningful uh, meaningful you know, size crypto for, for native funds, but then others as well. Why don't you talk a little bit about the landscape and how you sort of see Electric 
uh, you know, carving out its, its, its own niche? Yeah, so, so I think there are three things to sort of touch on here. One is fund size, two is uh, stage, uh, and three is kind of thesis area. So on fund size, uh, you know, our, our second fund is a $110 million uh, venture fund. And so in the landscape of crypto, you, you have a lot of seed funds uh, and seed investors. You have a number of funds that are 20 to $50 million in size. And then you have uh, kind of on the other end of it, you have uh, Polychain, Paradigm, Andreessen, folks that have raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and have, you know, a billion dollars plus uh, assets under management. Um, and so by virtue of, of their fund size have to do um, you know, slightly different things. And so we sit in the middle. So our sweet spot is sort of leading a seed round or leading a series A, uh, you know, like a $2 million check or a $6 million check. That's kind of our sweet spot. And so kind of funds roughly at our size are folks like um, Pantera, uh, blockchain capital, uh, but actually, it's in my opinion the least crowded part of the market. It's kind of you know a lot of places you can go to get a to to get seed and angel checks. You know if you want to raise a million dollars, and of course uh, Paradigm and Polychain and and Andreessen you go to if you need to raise fifteen or twenty million. Um, but there's actually not that much competition in the middle, and so it's part of the reason that we we chose to be where we are. Um, you know the the second is sort of stage and. You know, our backgrounds as entrepreneurs and having built companies and scaled them and built organizations and scaled them, kind of the, the place where we love to operate is pre-product market fit and right at the beginnings of product market fit. Everybody on our team is, is also technical. Uh, and so we take the lens of, uh, you know, places where technology allows you to do things that you just couldn't do before, native new applications of, of technologies. Um, and so we love playing at that part of the ecosystem. So generally we're seed, series A, but playing around in, in places where, you're, you're generally pre-product market fit, uh, so we're not like growth stage investors. And then the third is kind of thesis. And our, our belief is that cryptocurrencies, you know, there's, a, there's kind of one world view, which is you look at it and you say, hey, look, these the systems are slow and they're not that scalable and they're hard to use. And they have all these trade-offs. They're, they're sort of bad for a lot of things. And our view is, well, that's just the wrong way to look at this stuff. The right way to look at it is to say, what are these things uniquely good at? You know, by analogy, I think you could have looked at the iPhone in 2007 and you could have said it's slow and the internet connection is slow and there's no physical keyboard and the screen is small. And like, this is going to be a terrible uh, work device. Uh, and you might've been right. You know, it's, it's worse than a laptop for a lot of reasons, but I think you would have missed the point, right? The point was that there's a touchscreen and there's a GPS on the device and there's a camera on the device. And all of a sudden, it unlocked things that you just couldn't do before, like Instagram and, and Uber. And so that's kind of the lens we look at it through. And, and our belief is that what this stuff is really uniquely good at is money and moving money. Um, you know, Bitcoin potentially is a new form of, uh, uh, of money or Ethereum as a, as a means to move money around. And really one of the critical breakthroughs here, which I think is really underappreciated, is the idea that what you have is bits are money. It's a simple statement, but I think it's easy to lose the importance of it. So, you know, today, if you log into your bank account, the, the numbers that you see on the screen are, are numbers sitting in a database that represent money, right? They aren't the money themselves. Like the numbers are a representation of money. You still have to go to the bank and it's an IOU and hopefully the database is correct. But it's really an IOU that says uh, I owe you some money. Um, in crypto, the bits themselves are the money, right? If you own the bits, you own the money. Uh, that's what Bitcoin is. It's a bearer instrument and, uh, and Ethereum. And so, and, and the way that you assert ownership over those bits is with a private key, is, is with another set of bits. And so you play that forward. And what you realize really quickly is that what this means is that actually computers can own money for the first time. 
uh, computers can actually take custody of assets. And when computers can take custody of assets, you open up this whole new universe of possibilities. Um, you know, I can now pay my computer or I can pay a piece of code to do something or uh, machines can pay machines. Right. And so it opens up this whole set of possibilities that just weren't possible before. And so kind of our thesis is what this infrastructure is really good at is effectively a new form of money. And it unlocks the ability for computers and code to natively custody money and do things on it. And if you think about it, a lot of the world, literally hundreds of trillions of dollars of assets is very simply, here's a pile of money. Here's a bunch of rules around that money. Here's who has access to that money. And on some future time horizon, please execute this set of instructions that are sitting in this 300 page legal document. You know, that's a will, that's a trust, that's escrow, that's REITs, that's you know, mortgages, that's uh, derivatives, that's securities. Like it's literally hundreds of trillions of dollars of the world is basically a pile of money with a bunch of rules around it. And if you think about it, computers are strictly better than humans at one thing, which is deterministically executing instructions on some future time horizon. And so all of a sudden what you have is this infrastructure that's a perfect fit for, for money and money-like things. Um, and so that's where we focus. And it's a little bit different than, than some other firms where, you know, we're not that optimistic yet about things like non-fungible tokens. Um, you know, it's very early in that world. We're not that optimistic yet about things like decentralized infrastructure, things like, uh, you know, uh, decentralized file storage or decentralized computation. We think those things will happen, but they're, you know, maybe five years away. Um, and so we really hone in on layer one chains that can become stores of value or exhibit stores of value sorts of properties um, and, and applications on top of that, um, things like uh, payments or decentralized finance, where you can you can create new value that just wasn't possible before. Um, and that's somewhat different than, than some of the other venture funds that, that will invest in, in other areas where we uh, generally don't venture. That awesome overview. For, for the audience that may not be as familiar, talk about, you mentioned what, what's newly possible Talk about why it wasn't possible uh, previously. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the fundamental breakthrough is that now computers actually own the money. Uh, so you don't need a human in the loop. So I can literally take some money and I can hand it to a piece of code. And the, the code now custodies those assets. And the, the, uh, the code that has been written determines who has access to those assets. And so there isn't actually a human on the other side to whom you can appeal. Uh, there isn't a phone number you can call and say, hey, hey I want my money back or do, undo that transaction. And so the sort of fundamental basis for how, you know, you actually interact and who you're interacting with changes. So, for example, you know, in, in finance today, like you, you need a counterparty. You need somebody to be trading with. You need somebody that's going to take your assets. You need some legal entity. And really behind that legal entity are a bunch of humans um, that are ultimately responsible for this. And in this universe, actually, there may not be a legal entity, right? It's actually just a piece of open source code sitting on an open source blockchain being executed by computers all over the world. And you can hand money to that thing and it can do certain things with that money based on, on what the code says it's allowed to do. Um, now you can ask it for the money back. There may be, there may be ways to say, Hey, I want my money back. But again, there's no human in the loop here. Right. And, and if there's a bug in the code, for example, the kind of the bug is there um, and you kind of have to deal with it. Um, but the ability for you to have a counterparty that is a piece of software um, that does not have a human behind it and ultimately does not have uh, a mechanism for appeal um, and, and may not even have a legal entity backing it is kind of the interesting breakthrough in our opinion. The, I mean, the, we're having this conversation on, on a day where Bitcoin has, has risen above 19,000. You know, the price is, so everyone's you know, newly excited uh, about yeah, it. It's great, great timing for this conversation. Exactly. So, so talk about, for people who don't understand how these price fluctuations happen and, and what they signify, 
talk, talk about that a little bit. How, how, how do we make sense of this and what does it mean? Yeah, it's, it's actually, that's a really great question. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think if, if anybody truly understood what is driving the price up, uh, you know, where the, where the funds are flowing from and who's, who's doing the buying and who's doing the selling, I think, you know, you can make a lot of money doing you know, just trading of this asset. Uh, but, you know, broadly speaking, I think Bitcoin does seem to exhibit these patterns, these cycles, roughly four-year cycles. Um, you know, it, it tends to have very, very steep price appreciation. Um, and then it tends to have very aggressive pullbacks. So, you know, going up 10 or 20 X, uh, over one to two years. Um, and really the bulk of that price appreciation happening in, in just a month or so, if you look back at the 2017 cycle, you know, it went from about 10 K to 20 K in a matter of, of, uh, just two weeks or so, uh, you know, just, it just went vertical. Um, and then of course it corrected very quickly as well. Uh, and, you know, it tends to have sort of 80% pullbacks from, from the peak. But unpacking why that's happening exactly other than there are just a lot more people that want to buy and a lot fewer people who want to sell and you know, the sellers want more and more money for this for this asset is pretty hard. Now, I do think more fundamentally, there, there have been some interesting changes in the last year that are catalyzing this. So one is, of course, uh, we moved into effectively a zero interest rate world with, with sort of COVID and Corona and then the Fed cutting rates and printing a bunch of money. A bunch of macro stuff changed. And for a lot of people in this ecosystem, They've long said that Bitcoin is a potential store value. Uh, it's a fixed supply asset. There's only 21 million Bitcoin. And in a world with significant quantitative easing, uh, when there are more and more dollars and more and more fiat, um, you're effectively uh, devaluing the fiat and things that are fixed supply, um, that are provably fixed supply, uh, will tend to appreciate. And those assets will perform really well. Um, so this is very similar to the argument that people have for why you might want some gold um, in these periods. And so in effect, Bitcoin, a lot of people think, operates kind of like digital gold. Um, and, you know, in a world where everything is potentially even negative interest rates, right? Actually, a lot of the world is now operating with negative interest rates. A 0% uh, uh, yield actually is better than negative, right? So all of a sudden, it becomes a compelling asset. Not to mention that it has all of these other really nice properties. All of a sudden, people start to, to value in these sorts of um, COVID times. Namely, that it's non-sovereign. So it's not issued by a single government. It is seizure-resistant. You know, like by design, if you look at what Bitcoin was designed to do, it's this massively distributed system um, that ideally cannot be taken down uh, by any any individual or any um, state actor. Um, and so what you have is not only is it a, a uh, sort of fixed supply asset that behaves a lot like gold, it has a number of other really interesting store value properties, such as being seizure resistant. Like if you have it, nobody really needs to know that you have it. It's it's not anonymous, but it is pseudonymous. And so if, no, if you don't tell anybody you have it or what your wallet addresses are, nobody really knows that you have it. And actually, unlike gold or unlike other physical assets, it's actually better in some dimensions, such as uh, transportability, right? Like if you wanted to carry uh, $10 million of gold uh, across the country border today, it's, it would be quite challenging to do that. But you could do that with Bitcoin. Um, or let's say, you know, I think one of the, the sort of classic examples that gets used by, by people in this space is imagine you're in a World War II type of situation and you're in a country and, and um, let's say you're, you're Jewish in Germany and you're trying to leave. How do you carry some percentage of your, of your net worth with you as a refugee? It's actually quite challenging. And, and history has shown us actually that the governments will seize these assets. And, and frankly, the better the record keeping as, as World War II showed us, the more likely it is that the government will actually pursue these sorts of, you know, actions um, against their own people, even unfortunately. And in this case, you have all of a sudden an asset that's that's even more transportable than historically it's been possible because it's digital. And so that that's actually a tremendous benefit. So you start enumerating the value of this stuff, and you realize in a world with 
significant money printing and a black swan event like COVID, a number of people sort of woke up this year and said, wait a second, maybe this thing actually does have some utility and maybe I should have some. Maybe not that much. Maybe I just want to have half a percent or 1% of my net worth in it. Or if I'm an institution, maybe I just want, you know, 50 basis points or 1% of my portfolio to have some exposure to this thing. And then all of a sudden money starts flowing in. And so that narrative that people have had in the space for many years, frankly, um, seems to be to be becoming real. Like it becomes, it's starting to become a thing that, that a lot of other people who are not, who would not consider themselves cryptocurrency enthusiasts are sort of coming around to this idea that actually maybe this thing has some real utility. So is it largely retail driven? That is a great question. I actually don't think it's retail driven in this one. Um, and and the, the data point for that is uh, twofold. One, if you look at Google Trends, you're just not seeing people searching for things like Bitcoin or Ethereum anywhere close to where you were in the 2017 run-up. So we still have some way to go on that. You can also look at things like flows on Coinbase, like transaction volume. And it's really only in the last couple of days that you started to see that that go up. You know, if you were looking at this data two weeks ago or something, you really weren't seeing that. You know, when it was going from 4K to 6K to 8K to 12K, you actually just weren't seeing, uh, you know, Coinbase or Binance volumes spike the way that they were in 2017, suggesting that a lot of this activity is not happening on those uh, on those exchanges. It's probably happening over you know, institutional buys. It's happening in, in OTC desks. So the channels where these buys were happening were not the retail channels. So there's some data suggesting it's not yet retail. Um, that may have switched here in the last couple of days as we've really approached all-time highs again, uh, as we approach 19, 20K on Bitcoin. Um, and, and some of the signal there, of course, you can see volume starting to tick up on places like Coinbase. Um, but you're also starting to see all of the non-Bitcoin assets start to move again, which is, a, which is a sign that you're starting to see that retail speculator dynamic re-enter the market. Uh, but it's still very early. And, and there's a lot of signal that suggests that actually we're just in the very, very beginnings of that. What have we learned or, or not learned about what, what Bitcoin correlates with? Or, uh, or, or is cyclical to or counter-cyclical to? There, there was this idea that when, you know, in COVID, the Fed was printing all this money and, and people thought Bitcoin would, would rise, but we didn't see that spike necessarily. What do you think we've learned or, or haven't yet learned about, about that? Yeah, I think it's, that's also a really great question because that is one of the, the assertions here you know, from an institutional allocator's perspective is that this is an uncorrelated asset class. And um, as, as people likely know, if you're in this space, just generally the investing space, adding uncorrelated assets to your portfolio can actually be net additive uh, just from a return perspective at the portfolio level. And so there's a lot of interest in Bitcoin as an uncorrelated asset because for the last decade, it basically has not correlated with the stock market or with gold or with bonds. It's just been uncorrelated to all of the major asset classes. In March, when we had this major correction, March 2020, uh, everything corrected, cor- uh, correlated. Uh, everything went down. Right? So gold, Bitcoin, uh, stocks, uh, bonds, everything sort of co- correlated and, and crashed. Uh, it seems things have decoupled. And so especially if we look at it in the last you know, 90 to 180 days, um, those, those, uh, that lack of correlation between, say, Bitcoin and gold or Bitcoin and the stock market uh, has come back down. Um, and so we're basically in uncorrelated territory again. Uh, you know, historically, if you look at it, uh, it's, it, you know, the correlation has, has been anywhere from zero to, you know, negative plus or minus 0.25, um, which is basically uncorrelated. And, and we're basically back there now. What does that mean for the future? I think it's a, it's a very open question. I think, you know, even people in the space who are honest will tell you that Bitcoin and crypto has really only existed in a global bull market, right? Bitcoin was created in 2008, sort of in the, in the shadow of the 2008 correction and really came to life in 2009, 2010. So we haven't lived through a drawn out correction 
you know, the COVID correction, I think, was was relatively short lived. It was a pretty fast recovery in terms of uh, the markets, you know, not so much on the real economy. And, and so we have to see how that plays out. But I think over the next five, five to seven years, as we see the effects of COVID playing out through the real economy and eventually into the markets, I think we'll get a much better signal for whether or not Bitcoin can truly stay uncorrelated. And if it does, I think this next five year window is where it, it can actually establish itself as a potential additive piece to an institutional portfolio. And if that were to happen, I mean, you just, you just run the numbers, half a percent or 1% of all of the endowments and the pension funds and the sovereign wealth funds saying, maybe this thing is actually uncorrelated and I should have some is, is a tremendous amount of capital. None of that is here yet because I think a lot of people are still waiting to see whether or not it does stay uncorrelated. Um, and, and that is a big open question, I think. I want to bring in Ethereum to the conversation. You, you mentioned that maybe the equivalent of sort of Snap and Uber here uh, in the crypto space is, is, is money and moves money. And you mentioned Bitcoin and Ethereum. How have sort of the narratives for, for Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, individually uh, changed over time? And then also sort of the, the intersection or, or interplay with, with them changed over time because they've been sort of you know adjacent, jostling, at times direct competitors. Uh, why don't you talk about how, how that's evolved and how you see that playing out over time? Yeah, you know, the, the narratives, uh, you know, I think for Bitcoin started much more as literally, if you go look at the the original Bitcoin white paper, right, it was intended to be a peer to peer payment mechanism a peer to peer currency. Uh, and it's, it's really evolved much more into a store value uh, with a, a global settlement layer, um, where you don't need to necessarily buy coffee with Bitcoin. That's, that's not really part of the narrative the way it was five or seven years ago. Uh, and it can operate much more like gold. Ethereum sort of started much more from this perspective of, you know, what if you could build a programming language on top of a cryptocurrency and, and make it really easy for developers to actually write code to do things with the money? What could happen? And the original lens was sort of this global world computer that, you know, this unstoppable world computer where you could execute any code. And I think what uh, has really taken root in the last uh, 12 months in particular, I think, is that actually perhaps the killer feature here, the killer app, on this system is actually decentralized finance is the ability to move money. And so, you know, in, in 2017, I think Ethereum went through this wave of let's take all of the things that worked on the internet and just decentralize them. Let's put them on a blockchain, which, which obviously was not going to work, right? Like it, you don't need to decentralize Uber necessarily. And frankly, the infrastructure was, was too nascent to allow that to happen anyway. And out of that, I think we, we sort of everybody realized that, that the really killer stuff is really decentralized finance. Um, because when you're dealing with money, it doesn't need to compete with the internet, right? Like when you're when you're talking about settling of, of assets, you know, your competitor is, is often pen and paper, right? If you look at the traditional financial markets, you know, they're not 24 seven, you know, think about how, how painful it can be to move money from one country to another just by, just by wiring money around. Often that can take 24, 48 hours, 72 hours at times, depending on what the banks are and which countries you're dealing with. And it's kind of crazy to think about, right? There are not that many places in, in the modern world where, you can literally like the atoms can actually move faster than the bits or think about it. Like if you are sending money to a country um, and it might take 48 out of the U S it might take 48 to 72 hours to get there. You actually could go to the bank, get a bunch of money, put in a briefcase, get on a plane, fly there and give the cash to somebody. And it would actually be faster than the money settling, which is, which is insane to me. And that in 2020, there are actually still parts of the world where the atoms can move faster than the bits and so, you know, your competition for, for decentralized finance or, or, or uh, you know, finance in general is essentially pen and paper. And so all of the sort of trade-offs, you know, that, that um, blockchains have to make actually can still uh, make the utility really, really high. 
And so Ethereum's narrative, I think, has, has evolved much more to sort of this financial platform uh, away from a generalized world computer. And we may still yet see, you know, in the future, three, five, seven years from now, the more generalized world computer emerge uh, with uh, the financial apps being the sort of first killer applications. Uh, but that's kind of what the narrative has evolved to. The interplay between the communities, I think, is interesting. You know, I think a lot of crypto is very tribal. Uh, there's there's almost an evangelical element to it, which makes sense, right? I mean, you, you have everybody's basically talking their book in a sense, uh, and and the more that you can evangelize and and the more people that believe in this asset, uh, you know, it's it's reflexive. The more people that believe, the the more liquid the asset becomes. The more people accept it, then the more valuable it becomes. And so everybody, you know, has an incentive to to evangelize. Uh, and that can create tribalism. I think that can create this sort of sense of this is bad or this is good. And so um, there are a lot of sort of old school Bitcoiners that look at Ethereum as as a, as a scammy thing uh, or not serious for, and, and vice versa. I think there are a lot of um, people in the Ethereum ecosystem that that are not very fond of of the Bitcoin maximalists. But I think the vast majority of people, you know, it's, it's sort of the the uh, silent, the silent majority. I think the vast majority have a non-zero sum mindset. You know, I think the fact that we're even having this conversation is kind of crazy to think about, right? Like some guy wrote a white paper, an anonymous person wrote a bunch of code, released it onto the internet, and 10 years later, it's a multi-hundred billion dollar asset class that institutions are investing in. So like the fact that we're here in the first place is kind of a crazy concept. And so to me, any of these experiments are, are frankly possible, right? Like they're, they're sort of wild and crazy to think about that we're, we're talking about, you know, replacing or... or reimagining the entire global financial system. But is that any more crazy than some anonymous person writing a white paper and an anonymous person writing code on the internet in 2009 and a decade later, it's, you know, Bitcoin. That, that's in and of itself kind of a, a crazy phenomenon. And so to me, I take a very non-zero-sum approach to this. You know, I think any of these things, frankly, are possible. And the fun of it is imagining how it might happen. And, and as a technologist, as an early stage investor, that's that's pretty amazing to think about, right? Just rewind 10 years and think about all of the crazy things that have happened with Bitcoin. And to imagine that that sort of a thing might happen once or twice again in this space, because we're at the very, very early days of this stuff, uh, to me, is very exciting. Totally. I wonder if this analogy holds weight at all. Um, my, my, my sense was that, or I remember hearing that YC uh, posted a, a, a something about their application spiking when the social network came out, uh, the movie uh, d- uh, about Facebook. <laughs> does, does that ring yeah. a bell? Is that accurate? Yeah, that does ring a bell. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know if it's accurate. I don't know the numbers, but I wouldn't be surprised. I, 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 is there a similar opportunity to, like, is there a Hollywood, you know, retelling of Satoshi? <laughs> like, the Bitcoin origin story is so insane and so amazing and so, like, re- you know, religious and sort of the immaculate conception of it. And, and, and you mentioned tribes. Yeah, the people who are all about it are really religious about it. But is there a way to sort of like, how do we, how do we communicate this to normies at scale? Is that like a big opportunity or is it better to just get like more institutions involved? Or like, how do you think about that? Is enough being invested in sort of the, the mass marketing of, uh, and storytelling of, of, of Bitcoin? You know, I hadn't thought about that. It's a really interesting question. And I'll tell you, I think my gut reaction is there's probably not. I think there's probably a really, really big opportunity. Now, I'm not sure if it necessarily needs to be a, like a, a Hollywood movie, but I do think there, you know, Balaji, who I think you've had, you've had on here a few times too, has, has sort of a great perspective on this. Uh, so I'm going to credit him with the idea, but I do think there is a broader opportunity for storytelling around technology. Like I think technology, uh, you know, if you rewind, let's say 25 years, had this sort of very positive slant on it, right? Or, or even if you rewind 50 years. 
right? We were going to, we were going to cure cancer and we were going to colonize the solar system. And there were all these amazing things that we're going to do. And over the last 50, and I think especially over the last say 10 years, um, that narrative has really shifted to being something tremendously negative uh, as, as technology that is almost dystopian that we need to contain and be careful of. And I think that narrative is really, really dangerous. And so certainly inside crypto, but, but even broadly, I think inside technology, there's an opportunity to be telling the story about how technology makes our lives better and all the amazing things that have happened uh, over the last 50 years. And I think if you can reignite that sort of positivity, that's actually, to your point, what gets people to come in and, and try. And often, you know, when you look, putting on your investor hat, often the, the bottleneck to really step function changes in society and technology uh, is just not enough people trying. You know, there, there are a lot of really interesting problems out there that need to be solved. Uh, and if you could convince 10x as many people to just get up and try, uh, you, you would literally have 10x as many breakthroughs, uh, in my opinion. And so the bottleneck is really how to get people to try. And, and I think you're right. There's probably just not enough, generally in technology, not just in crypto, there's just not enough storytelling about why these things are important. And, and how the world could be better if if, if more people tried. And, yeah, Peter Thiel t- talks a lot, a lot about this uh, as well. D- do you have an instinct as to why the the narrative w- went went so sort of uh, negative or, or less sort of you know aspirational um, in, in that sense? You know, I, I think I, I have a I have a short term um, thought on that, which is just I think there's just in in, in sort of mainstream technology, um, it just became powerful, and there's a lot of money at stake and in general, people are skeptical of the rich and the powerful, and probably rightly so. And so what happened was through the 90s and early 2000s, you went from tech being the outsiders and saying, hey, look, we're going to disrupt the power structure. We're going to democratize access to information. We're going to democratize access to uh, media. We're going we're to do all these great things and, and sort of upset the existing power dynamics, which seem unfair. And it's, it's not fair that so few people have power and money only to end up in a world where a lot of the same properties sort of held, it was just different people, right? It's just now uh, a handful of tech companies have extreme power and influence and money, and, and um, it's unclear how you disrupt those things. And so that I think that transformation of the last 20 to 25 years of going from the outsiders to really being the biggest and most powerful companies in the world naturally leads to a lot of skepticism. And, you know, you, you play that forward and maybe that's just the natural evolution of technology, right? Like it, it starts as an outsider and the people who who jump into that are by nature optimists. They have to believe that disruption is possible and, and there is a better uh, better way to do things. And over time, as, as that bears fruit, it turns out that that then becomes the mainstream way to do things and, and the power structures become entrenched. And then it's time for a new generation of entrepreneurs and, and a new set of technology to emerge, hopefully. Um, and in some sense, I, I think that's kind of what's happening with cryptocurrencies. It's it's a lot of that same ethos that powered the early internet uh, has shifted into crypto, right? And it's, it's you don't see those types of people, frankly, at Google or Facebook uh, these days. And I, I say that with tremendous love for the people that work there. I w- I've worked there for many years. Um, I help I help you know build and ship products in those companies, um, and I still have a lot of friends there. But the ethos is really different, and so I think that ethos has shifted to to places like crypto. Um, which have that sort of, you know, desire to disrupt and, and desire to sort of uh, reimagine the power structures and the, and the money structures of the world and imagine how they could be better. But it's, it is a fascinating question of like, what is the root cause of it? I, I don't know if there are other causes. I'd have to think about it more. But certainly, I think the concentration of power and wealth that has happened in inside technology companies leads to downstream skepticism. Totally. We were talking earlier about uh, DeFi. And when we've had some sort of regulatory 
you know, skirmishes, battles recently, including, uh, you know, BitMEX getting sued by the CFTC mm. uh, and, 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 and some others. Uh, what, what does that mean for the, for the space? Well, so un- unpacking that, I think it's a, where are the regulators paying attention? So first of all, I think you have to think about what do the regulators really care about? And I think actually most of what they care about is pretty reasonable. The uh, regulators basically don't want people to get scammed. Very reasonable. They want people to pay their taxes. It's also very reasonable. And they don't want people to give money to terrorists. Also totally reasonable. Like people should pay their taxes and not give money to terrorists. So, you know, I think the the sort of at a very high level, the requests or sort of the constraints for the regulators are are actually pretty reasonable. And by and large, you know, I I think just scoping this to the U.S. for a second and, and setting aside, say, Asia and Europe, because so much of the world will, will sort of snap to what the U.S. regulators do. I actually think most of what's happened in the U.S. is, is not that crazy. Now, I don't think the, the regulators have necessarily been uh, outwardly supportive or encouraging, but I don't think they've killed it either. You know, and, and at this point, Bitcoin is not a security. Ethereum is not a security. And, you know, they could have killed it. Uh, they could have shut the window on this stuff multiple times over the last few years. And um, between the SEC and FTC, CFTC and, and um, FBI and CIA, like there were lots of opportunities to, to kill this stuff off. And I think the U.S. government rightly recognized that, that that's sort of how technology works, right? There, the early days, you kind of leave it alone. And if you let good people come in, they'll find really interesting uses for this stuff. And you want to stay aware of what's happening. You want to stay on top of it. And when it becomes really big and meaningful, then you start thinking about how to regulate it. And you're kind of seeing that happen now with, let's say, Google and Facebook and, and um, antitrust, antitrust conversations. But generally, if you can stay hands off and just sort of make sure that, that the really, really, really scammy stuff does not happen and people know that you don't want that stuff to happen, then you might get a lot of innovation. And if you do it right, then you'll get a whole new economy that gets built on top of this stuff. And, and that's kind of what's happened. Um, you know, the U.S. has Coinbase and uh, Digital Currency Group, DCG out of New York, um, you know, Winklevoss Capital, Gemini, you know, you start running through the list, all, all the, the largest VCs in the world, uh, the capital allocators that are that are sort of the, the highest quality capital allocators, you know, Electric, Andreessen, Paradigm, Polychain, you start running down the list, they're all in the US, you know, uh, Coinbase, obviously, uh, many of the largest, uh, like true technology players in this space, you know, Filecoin, uh, Mobilecoin, Oasis, Definity, you start running through the list, a lot of those are in the US. So actually, I think the regulators at a high level have done pretty reasonable-ish things. Now, I don't think they've done everything perfectly, but um, they also haven't killed this off. Now, what's starting to happen, I think, is that the market sizes are getting large enough on just the Bitcoin side that I think the regulators are starting to pay attention and say, okay, now that the market sizes are large enough, let's make sure that that the really bad stuff doesn't happen. Uh, And so, for example, the CFTC pursuing BitMEX, which is a Hong Kong-based derivatives exchange. Uh, and saying that they were doing a bunch of things that they shouldn't have been doing and serving U.S. customers and not doing proper KYC uh, is actually somewhat positive because what that suggests is that these markets are now big enough that the regulators are paying attention and they're trying to bring in bad behavior. But if you notice, they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't shut it off in the U.S. They didn't go after Coinbase. Uh, CFTC has actually continued to grant licenses. Uh, for example, they granted a, a designated contract market license, DCM license to uh, Bitnomial, to um, BACT. You know, so these startups that are emerging that can actually trade, uh, that, have, that have the regulatory um, licenses to trade derivatives inside the U.S. And those, those uh, products are going to start launching here in the next you know, several months. 
And so actually, I think it's, I actually look at that as a positive development. What they're essentially doing is clamping down on the, on, on the unregulated stuff and saying, you have a set of tools like KYC that you should be using, go use them. Uh, and, and by shutting down BitMEX, I think it will actually, hopefully, my hope is, they will, they will move some of that activity onshore into the U.S. and the beneficiaries will be well-regulated exchanges, which, which further cements this as, as an asset class that people should be paying attention to. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, we, we were just talking about the, the U.S. I, I, I want to talk about China. And, and you mm. guys most recently uh, you know, wrote a report about the Chinese Central Bank Digital Currency Initiative and, and how the U.S. government sh- should respond. Why don't you unpack some of your, your findings and, and research and, and, and perspectives? Yeah, it's this. Yeah, you know, to me, I think the the sort of U.S. China thing is going to be a backdrop of just a lot of stuff over the next ten years. You know, inside technology and, and outside, uh, whether it's trade, whether it's manufacturing and jobs, you know, intellectual property, uh, human rights. There's these are clearly you know everything is sort of converging. And if you look at polls, there are not a lot of things that the left and the right generally agree on. But figuring out how to how to coexist in a world with China and what that means. Is, is sort of something that generally the left and the right do agree on. And so it's likely one of the areas going into the next decade that you'll actually see movement on, whereas there are broad swaths of, of other forms of policy that the left and the right in the U.S. do not agree on. But this is one area where they generally are, are I think, going to pull in the same direction. So with that backdrop, you know, I think what's happening in the, in the currency side of it is pretty fascinating, right? Like the U.S. has this really amazing strategic asset in the U.S. dollar. Um, you know, if, if you look at the, the borrowing and lending that happens in the world and how trade is denominated and the influence that the U.S. has with the U.S. dollar as a tool of national security because settlement ultimately happens in the U.S. dollar. Like even between two currencies, you know, two countries like, um, let's say, you know, Brazil and, and countries in West Africa or even China and Russia, you know, the, the bulk of trade between China and, and Russia used to be denominated in U.S. dollars as of, as of five years ago. And that's, a, that's an amazing national security tool. And so now if you think about China, do they really want to give up that strategic leverage to, to the U.S.? Uh, you know, there's lots of advantages to uh, the U.S. being a, a reserve currency, and there are a lot of disadvantages that come with it. So that's not to necessarily say that, that China wants to make the yuan a, a reserve currency on, you know, to replace the dollar. Uh, but certainly from a settlement perspective, not being tied to the U.S. dollar lets you sidestep things like sanctions. And so the way you see this playing out is actually if you look at uh, how Russia and China have been denominating their trade uh, relative to each other, they've essentially started not denominating it in U.S. dollars and moving off the U.S. dollar if they can. And it's because ultimately they, you know, ultimately they don't want to have, they don't want to hand the U.S. that leverage. So the way the Chinese are sort of executing on this, I think, is brilliant. What they're doing is they're essentially building a new settlement layer, a digital settlement layer uh, and an electronic payment layer. Uh, and a central bank digital currency. And what this is going to let them do is essentially control their money supply digitally. Uh, and so they can essentially turn the knob. They can have that capital flow out to their banks, commercial banks. Those banks can then you know, lend that money out to fintechs, and that money enters circulating supply. Um, and what they'll do is they'll actually, and this is already you know, sort of well-documented and, and they're relatively public about this, is they're going to extend that out to their Belt and Road Initiative, which is the, the trillions of dollars that they've been pouring into infrastructure into uh, into Africa, into the Middle East, and, and connecting into Europe, and and sort of all of those trade routes that they're investing in, uh, in order to have access to energy and goods, and and sort of not be dependent on the U.S. Um, and to invest deeply in these emerging markets, you know, for them to be able to have a, a digital currency platform where all of that trade gets settled in Chinese yuan instead of USD is is pretty phenomenal. 
right? It lets them see what's happening in real time in all these markets. It lets them, you know, understand who's buying what. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a scary thought that they could actually then potentially decide who gets access to the settlement layer and, and maybe say that certain types of people or certain individuals can't have access to this and could shut them out of the economy entirely if, if trade is denominated in, uh, in these belt and road countries or, or these ports um, with, with this uh, settlement system. So, you know, they're investing basically in a fully digital uh, technology stack around settlement and currency. And the U.S. is way behind on this. You know, I think this is this is not an area where the U.S. tends to move quickly, as evidenced by by something like healthcare.gov, if, if people remember that from a few years ago. Uh, and so there's a question here, what do you do? And I think the Chinese are playing, the Chinese government is playing this perfectly, right? They're they're investing in controlling enough of, of uh, what's happening around the Bitcoin ecosystem by not shutting it down, but preventing their citizens from having too much capital flow into it while retaining a lot of influence over the, the ecosystem. Not saying they necessarily control Bitcoin, but they have a lot of influence in the ecosystem, certainly. Uh, at the same time, investing in their digital currency. Uh, and the US really is not being that strategic about it. And so when we wrote this paper and we said, what would you do, thought experiment, what should you do if you're the US government, given that this is happening and given, given the strategy that China is, is using here? And the conclusion we came to was that uh, the, the US government needs to take a three-pronged strategy here. Uh, the first is they need to invest in their own digital currency layer. And that's going to that's gonna be hard work, right? Updating you know, the Fed systems and how money flows, M0 flows out to the banks and gets into the economy. That's a lot of work and that's going to take several years. And the reality is because the Chinese government has been working on this for five years, they're already far ahead. And so that's unlikely to be competitive. Like the reality is you're not going to beat the Chinese government to market on this. And so you're essentially starting from a five to seven year uh, delay. So that's not enough. It's important to do, the government should absolutely do that, but it will take 10 years to play out. And by then it's too late. Because if, if most of the world has now moved to this digital currency settlement platform that the Chinese government has built, you've lost your strategic advantage uh, of all of that happening on the US dollar. And so prong two should be to support the crypto dollar ecosystem that's emerged. So if you look at crypto, it turns out one of the killer applications on crypto is the US dollar. There are now about $25 billion worth of crypto dollars floating around in the crypto ecosystem. The majority of these are, are actually backed by real dollars sitting in banks somewhere. Um, and people are, are transacting on these crypto platforms because it's just a better user experience. You can send money instantly. Uh, the markets operate 24 seven. Um, you know, the settlement is, is seamless. Like after you use a crypto dollar experience like USDC, it's just, you realize how busted and how antiquated the, the banking system is. So, our, our second proposal was actually the U.S. government should be embracing this and supporting this and, and making it so that ultimately those dollars are held onshore in U.S. bank accounts, um, because actually most of those dollars are held offshore right now. And it's unclear whether those those uh, dollars are, you know, one to one backing these crypto dollars or, you know, it's, it's, it's just not a very transparent system. So prong two is the U.S. government should support all of these crypto dollars that are, uh, uh, you know, that, that crypto dollar ecosystem that's emerged as, as a very organic uh, killer feature on top of crypto. And then third is, in our opinion, that the U.S. government should much more actively be supporting the decentralized cryptocurrency ecosystem. So in some sense, if, uh, you know, the, the building of a central bank digital currency and the supporting of, of crypto dollars is sort of defense, like you're sort of going blow for blow with what the Chinese government is going to offer the market uh, and getting out there very quickly with crypto dollars because they're already out there. And now you're just allowing those crypto dollars to flow into the rest of the world um, with oversight happening in the U.S. Um, you can actually compete. But the question is, how do you win? And uh, as you know, you know, from, from sort of startup 101 theory, 
the way that you win is not by trying to play the same game as your competitor. What you try to do is you try to switch the rules of the game. You try to offer the market something that structurally your competitor cannot offer. So for example, you know, I think part of what made Snapchat work was that in the early days, it was a creation-based experience, not a consumption-based experience. So when you open the app, it just opened into the camera, whereas Facebook opened into the newsfeed. Um, and fundamentally, the thing that you were creating was ephemeral in Snapchat um, V1, not like Facebook, where Facebook is really built around permanent identity. The entire point of Facebook is all of your photos and everything you've ever done. And so uh, whether by design or by accident or, or intuition, Snapchat essentially created the one thing that Facebook could not do, right? They created a creation-based ephemeral experience, and Facebook was fundamentally about primarily consumption and permanence. And so structurally, Facebook was, was unable to compete. And, you know, setting aside kind of what happened down the road and why it happened, you know, I think that was, that's a pretty fascinating case study. And so the question is, what, what should the U.S. government do that structurally the Chinese government cannot do? And in our opinion, a lot of the, the values of the cryptocurrency ecosystem, uh, the kinds of things that, that the crypto ecosystem has embraced, for example, privacy uh, or bottoms up decentralized innovation uh, and allowing developers to have effectively freedom of speech, freedom of expression, are things that are antithetical to the Chinese government's uh, way of operating today. Um, they're just not going to be able to offer privacy. They're just not going to be able to offer true freedom of speech and freedom of expression to developers. And so if we can embrace those kinds of things that, that structurally the Chinese government cannot embrace, uh, then we actually have a shot of outcompeting. We actually have a shot of winning. So in, in essence, that third prong of the strategy is our offensive strategy, whereas the first two are our defensive strategies. And so anyway, we laid this out in a, in a, in a paper and um, I learned through, uh, through some friends that it was actually circulated pretty broadly inside, inside sort of senior, uh, senior circles, uh, both in in uh, the intelligence community and inside um, sort of treasury and, and sort of some, uh, some of the regulatory bodies. Because I think, I think it's just a, we, we approached it without bias and to, to the extent that we can, obviously we're crypto investors, but from the lens of what would you do if you're the U S government and what is sort of the game theoretical, you know, optimal strategy. And it's pretty clear when you're laid out that, 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 that's actually the right move. That's actually, you know, the optimal strategy for the U S government to take. And it sounds like actually there are some, some receptive voices in government. Yeah, uh, that, 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 was, that was well put. It's, it's fascinating. Um, gearing toward, towards closing a little bit, if we're having this, if you're back on, on the podcast in you know, two years from now, four years from now, what do you think are the biggest unanswered questions or how do you expect this conversation to, 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 to be different? I'm sure there'll be some, some unknown unknowns, but, but what could you predict? Uh, you know, how, how might you think that the space will uh, might materially evolve? Yeah, I think what will, well, there, there are a couple of, Big open questions, I think, around regulatory, which we were just chatting about. Um, and, you know, to what degree do regulators in the U.S. sort of greenlight some of these experiments and allow them to flourish? You know, I think there's still some big open questions about, for example, you know, what does it mean to be sufficiently decentralized such that that these networks and the tokens that power them are not securities? It's a little bit of an open question. Um, and how do we measure that? And what does that mean? But, you know, I think ultimately it's going to come down to use cases. And so I think the big open question right now is, okay, is DeFi just this thing that a bunch of people on the fringe want to do? Or does this actually unlock sufficient utility uh, that actually becomes a mainstream behavior, whether it's mainstream for institutions or whether it's mainstream for retail, I think is, is uh, a big open question. But, you know, if over the next two to three years, we can't start to see the shoots of that and we can't start to see that this thing is actually taking root, 
I think that'll be that'll be a bad sign because that suggests that that this may just be a niche behavior. This may not be a thing that ever goes mainstream. And it's still really early days, right? There are lots of things that that people in fringe communities like to do that just never quite go mainstream. Now, obviously, I'm optimistic that that the infrastructure here will enable a whole set of new use cases. But you know, I think one of the the things that we're just not sure about yet is are we are we actually in sort of you know is this actually more like 1999 of the internet and we're actually about to go mainstream uh, as, as a bunch of people come in? Or are we actually more like 1992 of the internet? It's going to happen, but it's going to take another decade. You know, it, and I think that's just a big open question right now. Uh, and, and we're optimistic that it's going to happen you know, very, very quickly here over the next few years. And a lot of these DeFi tools will essentially reinvent what the financial system was, but they'll do it 10x faster and we'll recreate all of these primitives. But we could be very wrong about that. So that's kind of the big one that we think about is like, how quickly will these use cases go from being fringe uh, and, you know, tens of thousands of people doing this stuff and moving single digit billion do- billions of dollars around to millions of people and hundreds of billions or, or trillions of dollars. And does that ha- happen over three or four years or does that happen over 20 years? And, you know, as investors, that, that means very, very different things in terms of how we invest and where we invest and what the returns look like. That's a that's a perfect place to, to wrap. If, you, if you're... Uh, an entrepreneur building something in 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 crypto, you'd be uh, remiss not to not to talk to Avichol or or have him on your cap table if you have the opportunity. You you and Electric more more broadly, uh, Avichol. This has been a, a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.